Welcome to the Taylor and Jen podcast. Mornings with Taylor and Jen. They used to call me the Viper. They called you the Viper. No, you called yourself the Viper in your head. Some people called me the Viper. You did. At least one. There are a lot of emotions going on, and you shared a quote with me recently. I think it was Tim Keller who said, the Psalms are a way of praying our emotions. That's exactly what he said. And that's what we've been doing, just going through the Psalms, finding different ones. Uh, This is Psalm 139. Uh, You may recognize some of these words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and your works are wonderful. I know that full well. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think we all crave the intimacy of being known. Will you read the first three or four verses of the Psalm 139 that you just read for us? It says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. I think in quarantine, self-isolation, it's easy right now to feel very alone. Yeah. And and feel very unseen, even if you've got people in the home with you. But if you don't, especially... uh, You know, nobody understands, nobody knows, everybody's forgotten me. And and even when things are normal, you know, I think sometimes we as human beings struggle with feeling alone. Yeah. In maybe it's a bad relationship or maybe there's no relationship. We want that friend Mm -hmm. that knows us so well they can finish the end of our sentences. We want that spouse or that partner that from across the room can look at you and know what you're thinking. We crave that intimacy. And I think a lot of us, if we don't find that, we feel so alone. But that psalm right there tells us that our God is that intimate with us. He knows what we're going to say before we even thought about saying it. He can finish all of our sentences for us. And that's such a a beautiful thing. I mean, we we just quoted Tim Keller, but I'm going to come back to him because he has one of my favorite quotes where he says, to be loved but not known is really shallow. Mm -hmm. To be known but not loved is one of our greatest fears. 
But to be fully known and fully loved is what it's like to be loved by God. He sees into the deepest, darkest parts of us. He knows everything about us. And he doesn't blink. Did you ever grow up or have you grown up thinking that emotions were kind of secondary to logic? Well, you know, I think you hear a lot about like, oh, it's just fueling your emotions, Mm -hmm. you know, that you need to get to the doctrine of this thing. You can't let your overly emotional. Yeah. Yeah. You never really hear anybody saying you're being overly logical unless you're talking to Spock. You know, I mean, really, emotions have kind of always taken like a second place or third place Mm -hmm. or an unwanted place in our culture, at least. But look what's happening now. During this quarantine, if if you're relying on logic to try to understand everything that's going on around you and control it by your knowledge of it, you're failing miserably. I know because I've tried. Yeah, I don't have the intellect to control the coronavirus. Well, nobody does right now. So many competing theories. Everybody's trying to wrap their head and their arms around it and nobody can get it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's theories. And so there's no way to control it logically. There's no way to control it in a knowledge based way. And for a lot of us, that's really hard. And so one of the things that we used to do when we couldn't control things logically and we still didn't want to get emotional about it was we would escape. Mm -hmm. We would shop or we would go to the movies or we would go to a ball game. And so we don't have to think about things deeply. We would go and we would escape. So here we are in a scenario (laughs) in our world right now where we can't understand what's going on logically and we can't escape. Yeah. I mean, we've literally been put in a place where we have emotions that we have to deal with. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is so good for believers to go to the Psalms right yeah. now. As as Taylor just read Psalm 139, especially, and if you've never read it, you need to go read it today. It's so good. Read Psalm 39 because, boy, could you have a more emotional book of the Bible? It is such a beautiful picture of how to use your emotions to worship God. You know, with all the gyms being shut down, mm-hmm. had to get a little creative with a home workout routine yeah. to stay healthy. Me too. <laughs> I got to say, I, I've been actually kind of proud of my workout routine, but I didn't realize just how well it was working until yesterday. Oh, really? I mean, I, I know that you've been doing these like workouts from the internet. And I've got stuff all the like resistance that. bands and stuff. Jen, I performed a great feat of strength yesterday. What? you do? I was out in my backyard doing some weeding and then I looked at this tree and I pulled the tree up by its roots. Just lifted it straight out of the ground. Why? How? Wait a minute. What? Uh, I've seen the tree up in the back corner of your backyard. No, no, not that tree, Jen. Oh. That's not Superman. Oh, I mean, you mean more, that I'm more like one? Superboy. I, I was you know, I was back and, you know, kind of weeding my back garden, and I leaned against this tree, and I realized it kind of gave a little bit, and then I realized it was kind of dying, so I just pushed it all the way over, and the roots came up. Oh, man. And I felt like a superhero. So you pulled up a dead tree. Still a tree, Jen. <laughs> Pretty impressive. You hear grief, and then you hear humor, and you don't think they pair very well. That is very true. You think that they should be on opposite sides of the room. But uh, there is a professor named Dr. Melissa Mork, 
who has found that they blend in really beautiful ways. She actually teaches a class at the University of Northwestern in St. Paul called Navigating Grief Through Humor. She's written a book by the same name. I actually took this class, uh, at least a little bit of it, after uh, my cousin passed away a couple years ago. She is so warm and wise and knowledgeable, and she's been through some of this stuff herself. Oh my goodness. When I read her story and then had a chance to talk with her, I couldn't believe that that bubbly voice came out of a woman with that kind of story. And as we're in this kind of coronavirus weirdness time, we've been recognizing that we are feeling a sort of grief over all this. So we got in touch with Dr. Mork and started by by saying, man, we're just under this feeling of malaise and lowness and we are so tired that it seems like it takes so much effort just to get anything done. Ah, man, I can so relate. It was raining the other day and I took two naps during the day and then fell right to sleep at bedtime. Yes. I just yeah, wow. fatigued and and I you I think I should be doing productive things. I should be reading books and writing and I can't do any of that. A friend of mine said the other day, she used this great analogy. She said, you know when you're on a long distance flight and you feel like you're going to get a lot of reading done and you're going to get some quality rest <laughs> and maybe do a little bit of writing or something. And then you get on the plane and all you do is eat and watch movies the whole time because yep. you're just waiting for that plane to land. That's exactly and I right. Like that's where we are. We're all just circling that airport waiting for a place to land. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. So I think we need to just give ourselves permission not to be productive, not to do, do, do. I mean, that's been our lives up to this point is just, mm. you know, we're measured by our productivity and our performance. And I think now we're in a season where it's more about being than doing, uh, being in the word, being in Christ, being present with our families, just and developing a, a closer relationship with ourselves that we've kind of been fleeing from up to this point. <laughs> That's, yeah, no. that's interesting. You, you know, I think um, what really made me think of you as we were going through this, you know, you talk a lot about the interaction between grief and humor, and it seemed like mm-hmm. as soon as things started getting crazy with this, everybody on Facebook and Twitter turned into comedians, and like so yeah. much hilarious <laughs> stuff started happening. And I've been trying to figure out how much of that is helpful and how much of that is like this unhealthy, creating a barrier between me and things I need to deal with. You know, and I think that's a really great question. I think the humor, what it's doing is giving us a sense of some sort of control over the situation. We're taking control back by making fun of it. And that is just, a, it's yes, it's a defense mechanism, but I think it's a fairly healthy one because it mm-hmm. gives us some perspective. There's a, a wonderful research project done by a friend of mine at the University of Tel Aviv. She interviewed survivors of the Holocaust and asked them one question. Tell me a time when you used or saw humor during the Holocaust. And the answers were deep and profound and hilarious. And basically the theme kept returning. This was our means of control over mm. a situation that felt so uncontrollable. Wow. Wow. I think the use of humor is adaptive. I think it's healthy. You know, when we're using sarcasm, when we're using hostile humor, when we're targeting other groups, then it's not so healthy. But when we're making fun of this just ridiculous situation... <laughs> I think it's probably good. I mean, I've noticed personally yeah. for me, just entertainment in general yeah. has always been this yeah. kind of healing thing. I remember yeah. the day my wife figured out her brother had died suddenly. 
Um, after we made all the phone calls and arranged with work and stuff, we just sat down and watched a dumb TV show that we'd been streaming. And it felt like, yeah. in the moment, wrong, because it was like, this is so light and fluffy in the midst of something heavy, but we needed something like that. Yes. You know, and I have a, a, a beloved friend, and she actually, in the course that I taught on Navigating Grief with Humor, she's the final interview that I conduct. She has five sons, three of whom were killed in a car crash by a drunk driver. And she said the two younger boys, every night after dinner, they would all sit down and watch sitcoms. She said it was the, it was the way that they could get through the evenings. Hmm. And, you know, nothing heavy, just light, fluff. She said at least one sitcom before bed was what she prescribed for the family, hmm. and she said it really helped them. We never think of humor as being a healer. Yeah. It's funny because I think a lot of times we think of humor as being the first thing that we can take out of our life if we want to be serious believers. If we want to be serious lights in the world, then we should not be laughing yeah. at things. Why has yeah. humor gotten such a short shrift? I think it's because as we've translated the Bible, we've at the cultural interpretation and translation, I think we're, we've lost the humor of the stories in mm. the Bible, and we take them so seriously. But I have to believe that Jesus was funny. Some of the, the parables he told in that time had to have been hilarious. And, you know, and there's a psalm that says, uh, a merry heart is like good medicine. It mm -hmm. heals the bones. I um, was asked by a church to come and speak about uh, the way that Taylor and I do our morning show, because we have a lot of humor in our morning show and Good. why. So I looked on the you know wonderful Internet for a book about Christianity and humor. I found huh? one <laughs> and it was written by a Catholic priest from heaven to mercy. I have it right here. On my I, book. Love that book! <laughs> I love that book. It's the only one I found. There's one other one. There's one by Susan Sparks called Laugh Your Way to Grace. Oh, I'm going to totally get yeah. that one. i got to read both of those now. That's awesome. I told you how good you that did. one it's was. It's been on yeah. my list. I just keep on reading dark science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that could help, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we know that the Lord created us in his image, and we have a sense of humor. So that has to be God-given and godly because it's part of his image. Absolutely. I think sometimes we hijack what we assume to be God's humor, though. We'll say, oh, I just lost my job right after I bought a house. God has a great sense of humor. And that's not, mm -mm. that's not God's sense of humor at all. I think God's sense of humor is that kind of joy that you feel when you're watching puppies play or <laughs> when you're gently teasing somebody with deep affection. I think that's more reflective of the humor of God and, and the humor of Jesus. Or a giraffe. Have you ever looked at a giraffe's face? <laughs> a platypus! I was wondering if you have any like practical steps, as we're in the midst of something that's really heavy, to bring humor into our lives in a way that's healing and not putting off the feeling that we need to have. I think you don't have to be funny to enjoy humor. You can look for it. You can seek it out mm. by chatting with funny friends, the people that you know that make you laugh. Connect with them and be playful with them. There's an Australian Facebook group called Isolation Bin Outing, and it's basically people dressing up in costumes to take their garbage down to the end of the driveway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I've been doing that. So last Wait, wait, wait. You've been 
doing that? Yes, I've dressed up in complete scuba gear, including a dive knife and dive rope to bring my garbage down last week. I love it. So I've got clown costume, mime costume, scarecrow, Colonel Sanders. I was an alien of death tea one day. <laughs> yes, it's become my favorite day of the week as garbage day. And my poor daughter, who is... <laughs> So easily embarrassed by me is the one that has to videotape it. So she has to stand out <laughs> the yard. And videotape that is it. brilliant. Yeah. That's great. You know, feel the deep feelings and name them. I, I think that's really important to say I'm grieving. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. Naming those things are so important. And we have great models throughout scripture of people who felt deep and intense emotion, lamentation, fear, and by naming them, we're able to pray through them. But mm. then to seek joy, you know, seek humor, seek playfulness, uh, levity, I think is a great balance to that. I can't even. <laughs> I'm so excited about the fact that you dress That's... up like that and you're a professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just look for me on Facebook. I got the, I got the videos. Uh, I'm just posting oh, every, every yeah. week. We were talking about this. There's a, a family in the UK that has a sign in front of their house that says, you're now entering the Ministry of Silly Walks. Act accordingly. <laughs> And they post videos from their doorbell camera of people who stop in front of their house and get in character and do goofy walks across the sidewalk. <laughs> I did find that, though. Um, so my wife lost her brother. The next year, she lost her cousin. The next year, her grandfather died. And the next year, my cousin died. Um, and then two years after that, her brother-in-law committed suicide. So we have had all kinds of grief that we've been dealing with. But what I found was if I don't let myself laugh at goofy memories or funny stuff about it, I am giving this grief more power than it needs. And I'm letting it steal away something that's so right. precious. And here's the other value, I think, is that when my children and I are remembering my husband, we laugh about, you know, the dumb dad jokes he told and the his idiosyncrasies and his quirks and the things that just were so endearing. And we laugh. And we're relocating him in our heart. He's back in relationship with us when we're remembering him like that and laughing. And it's kind of like when we're relating to God, if we focus on how we have sinned against God, we feel so far away from him. He hasn't moved, but we feel so far away. When we reflect and recall the joy that we have in that relationship with him, the forgiveness, uh, that salvation, the beautiful parts of our relationship with God— we are connected. We feel connected to him again. Mm. And similarly, when somebody isn't physically present with us, if we can remember them with joy and fondness and, and laughter, we feel connected as opposed to when I'm focusing on how Scott and I may have fought or argued or mm. I neglected. I didn't love him the way I should have. I feel far away from him again. So mm. I think remembering people with humor and affection is a way of continuing a relationship with them. It's like you almost tell yourself just the first half of the story before the good guys win at the end, over and over. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I've got a question for you. I, I see people on Facebook all the time saying, you know, when we get back to the, when we get to the other side of this quarantine, you know, let's mm -hmm. not get back to normal because normal was bad. Because with normal, we were too busy. We did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. Okay, can I just confess to you, I want to get back to normal so badly that sometimes I can taste it. <laughs> I want I want our normal world back. And it really, it, it makes me 
it makes me sad. Like, like I cried tears the other night into my pillow that our world will probably never be the same. Does this make me a bad person because I want the normal no. back? <laughs> no, I think a, I think it's so adaptive and healthy to just acknowledge and grieve what we have lost because we have lost hundreds of little things and big things. And I think it's absolutely appropriate that we grieve that. But I think also what we will return to or what we will become is that we have been so starved of community and connection with other people during this quarantine that we will rush to face-to-face connections with people. I think this, this isolation and this physical and social distancing has really driven home the point that we are designed for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with other people. He designed us that way. So that's, I think, why we are so hungry to reconnect. In the meantime, though, I think we really are in a place where we have an opportunity to connect with ourselves and really become reacquainted with ourselves Mm. and who we are in Christ. Once again, we have found something that we disagree on. So Jen's wrong again. I found some very important news today. I mean, this is extraordinarily important news. There is a new flavor of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Yes. That is important news. And it's news that doesn't have anything to do with most of what we hear about in the news now. So another reason why it's important. This new flavor is their classic chocolate ice cream, Mm -hmm. which starts off good. And then it has fudge chips in it. Also another good thing. Mm-hmm. I think both you and I can agree on oh, these yeah. things, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Chocolate ice cream with fudge chips so far. I'm on board. We're all good. Yeah. Everything's good. And then they went and ruined it. They put potato chips in it. There and this are is where we diverge. Crunchy potato chip swirls. I think that's a great idea. I think that is an abomination of a perfectly good potato chip and chocolate ice cream. I... I don't see how you can feel that way, Jen. I don't know why you are the way that you are. <laughs> I'm very concerned about your spiritual state. That really? This, I think that's a great idea. Okay, it's one thing to be sitting in front of the television and have a bowl of chocolate ice cream and have potato chips out and go, huh, I wonder how this would taste. But to actually put potato chips in a pint of mass-produced mm-hmm. ice cream. They've done it for us. It is not going to turn out well. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, it is. So you would try this. I, of course I you absolutely would, would try oh, my it. Word. New flavor from Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Mm. It's chocolate ice cream with fudge chips and potato chip swirls. I think it's a great idea. I think it's not. What do you think, Paul? I'm sorry, Taylor. I'm with Jen. Yay! You are? Why? <laughs> no. No. Just no. It's like the Avengers of snacks. What? Chips are really good on their own. Chocolate ice cream is really good on their own. And together they can beat up Loki. (laughs) I'll pray for you, Taylor. I really, really will. I get that you like to put your chips or your uh, french fries into like a chocolate frosty. Mm -hmm. But would you buy the frosty with the chips or the, um, what are those things? Fries. Fries already in it. 
See, that's what Ben and Jerry's has done. They have taken potato chips and swirled them into mass produced pints of chocolate ice cream. And I, it, it worries me because the integrity of the potato chip will be damaged. It will be soggy. It won't be salty. It'll just be blah. What do you think about that, Lori? You know what? I'm very intrigued by the Ben and Jerry's thing. And I kind of have a feeling that they probably coated the chip in chocolate and then put it in the ice cream. So thus preserving the salty and the crispy. A chocolate-coated potato chip. (laughs) Yeah, right? His eyes just rolled back into his head. Oh, my goodness. And started drooling. That sounds amazing. Because, I mean, like, they have, I'm pretty sure they have one that has, like, pretzel Mm. I've had that one. So, basic, same principle, it's just a potato chip. But I would imagine that they would have coated it in chocolate first before putting it in the ice cream. Well, if you imagine correctly, I might give it a shot. Hey! I might. We're bringing her to the right side. But if it's naked chips, uh uh-uh. No naked (laughs) chips. No. I'd like to make a little confession. First of all, Taylor and I are not always happy. (laughs) Believe it or not. (laughs) Believe it or not. Um, We're real people with real feelings. And there have been times and days during, you know, before the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. during this pandemic, especially where we've both been pretty down. Yeah. I had a really down day just two days ago. And I had a really down day two days ago, which was interesting with both of us being down and doing the show. Um, But you always make us feel better. You really Mm do. I mean, we always feel better when we're done. Um, Yesterday, I had another hard day. Yesterday, I let the headlines really get to me a lot. And the rain. And Mm -hmm. I didn't get to go out for a walk and some other things. Uh, My other confession is this. I have to have my daily devotional pushed to me on my phone. Otherwise, I sometimes don't do it. Very human. But I started having my verses pushed to me so that they come to me right away in the morning and I see them. And now it's gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, God, what are you going to show me today? This morning, I looked at my phone and I laughed out loud because this was my verse. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, Mm. always abounding in the Lord's work. Because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And you think about when Paul wrote that and to the church in the Corinthians when and he wrote that and what they were going through, the persecution that they were going through. And he's like, hey, guys, be immovable, mm. be steadfast. Because everything you're doing, whether you're being the mom in control of a home that looks like a blender now, or you're trying to work outside the home and be essential, or you're a nurse, or you're a UPS deliverer, or you're a morning show co-host, whatever the case may be, when you do it for the Lord, it is not in vain. You know how they say space, the final frontier? Yes. In my life, it's sleep. The final frontier. You you are always chasing a good night's sleep, Uh, and it seems very elusive for you. When I have a good night's sleep, the world knows, because I tell everybody. Mm. When you have a bad night's sleep, the world knows. (laughs) Thanks. No, just you. (laughs) (laughs) She lets me know. I get updates on Jen's sleeping patterns. And so because I don't sleep very well, I'm always fascinated by articles on sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, basically how to get a better night's sleep or how other people sleep. I want to know about sleep. So when I saw this article, I could not believe it. This just blows my mind. In this article that I just read yesterday, it says, on average, Americans take 24 minutes to actually get out of their bed and start the day after 
two alarms go off and they hit the snooze button twice. Two alarms, two, two alarms. snooze buttons, 24 minutes. Two, two, the average American mm-hmm. has not one, but two alarms. They hit both of them and then they hit the snooze twice and it takes them 24 minutes to get up and out of bed. Now, here's the deal. There are a lot of things that Jen and I are polar opposites on. Waking up in the morning is not no. one of them. We, we are both like alarm goes off. We've already been awake for about 45 seconds anticipating the, <laughs> the alarm, alarm going off. We spring out of bed. We roll into the office and we're ready to go. Hi! Hi! And so we're very obnoxious to people who aren't morning people. I just, I'm like, no way. 24 minutes to actually get out of bed. Two alarms and hitting the snooze. I can honestly say... I have hit the snooze button once and it was by accident. I was as I was getting out of bed, which meant when I was in the kitchen making my coffee, the snooze was going off, waking up my daughter. I do that, too. Accidental (laughs) snoozing. Maybe it's because I've never been a part of this world that I'm Mm. so fascinated by it. You know, the world, the world of people who sleep so well that it takes them multiple alarms and snooze buttons to get out of bed. They're so good at sleeping. It's hard to wake up. So believe, believe us when we say this is not a place of judgment at all. We are just so curious about this study that says that the average American, (laughs) it takes you 24 minutes to get out of bed, two alarms and two times hitting the snooze button. That's just amazing. We just want to understand people who are different from us. Jeff, are you someone who is different from us? I'm one of those people. I got two alarms. I snooze both of them. But then I will lay in bed and I'll calculate when do I need to get out of bed, even though (laughs) I make it to work. But 90% of the time, I'm the one that's leaving at 6 o'clock with 10 minutes to spare. Jeff, why is it so hard for you to get out of bed? Um... Comfort. Getting out from under those covers. Or- yes. Oh, my goodness. You're wow. speaking the same language of this article. Literally, I don't want to say that you're average, but I'm just telling you that you're like the number one answer. People say why it's hard for them to get out of bed is that they are too comfortable in their bed. You're not wrong. I mean, you are kind of wrong. I'm not average. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of the weird one. So <laughs> I'll be the first one to admit it. So maybe the study's wrong, except for all the data about me. <laughs> We're Taylor and Jen trying to understand the people who are different from us. The average American hits the snooze twice on two different alarms, and then it takes them 24 minutes to get out of their, quote, two comfortable beds, unquote. This is something I simply can't fathom. I don't sleep well in the first place, and I always always wake up before my alarm. Yeah, so Jen and I both only use one alarm. We don't hit the snooze, which makes us below the average of we number. Are, we are below average. And so we're ju- we're just trying to understand what it goes through your mind that you have to hit the snooze button multiple times. Haven't heard from many, and Diane has a theory on why that is. I was just going to say that the people who are hitting their snooze button probably aren't awake yet. They're just doing it in their sleep? No, you guys, they're not hearing you ask them oh. to call in because they're <laughs> They're still hitting their snooze and they're sleeping. That's why we aren't able to, to get a hold of them. So you're saying you're not one of those people. Oh, no. If the sun is up, if my alarm is up, I am awake right okay. now. Yeah. But two of my three kids are alarms. They'll hit their alarms and hit the snooze and snooze and snooze. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't you just get up? And well, they just can't answer the question. They don't know. If they're average, the study says it's because they're too comfortable. Their beds are just too comfortable. So they don't want to get out of bed. So stop spending so much money on nice beds. <laughs> yeah.
You can pour no, concrete no. for way cheaper. No, their beds are old and nasty, and they are not comfortable. No. <laughs> it takes the average American 24 minutes mm. to get out of bed and start the day after two alarms and hitting the snooze twice. And every mother of teenagers is like, 24 minutes, pshaw. <laughs> two hours. It takes two hours. I know. I know. And I wonder, Taylor, I'm wondering this. Do you think this has a lot to do with birth order? Because you and I are both oldest children mm-hmm. and we wake up like this, usually before alarms. And, you know, we're mo- both morning people. Yep. I don't know. But my sister, oh, my word. My sister is the middle of three of us. She sleeps the sleep of the dead. Okay. And she's like a giant hot brick when so she all, all sleeps. of a sudden she's a generator. <laughs> she is that's exactly she, right. She falls asleep and just radiating. Always has been, you know, even as a baby, she went to sleep like that, slept through the night, no problem. And when she would get scared, she would come in my bed with me and she would lay up next to me and she would fall asleep and then she would start generating heat and I'd wake up and I'd be like, <laughs> Get out of my bed and I couldn't wake her up. And and our dad used to come in and wake us up in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And all he would have to do is crack open the door and he'd be like, Jenny, and I'd be like, I'm awake. And then he'd say, Dina, Dina, Dina. And you know, he would yeah. make funny oh, yeah. noises. Dad voice. Dina. <laughs> and she would not wake up. I would get up. I would start doing everything. She would not get up. And I would know what was going to happen next. Boom! The door would open. Dad would come in. <laughs> he would put his foot on the end of her bed and he would start bouncing yes! the bed <laughs> until my sister would bounce and she tucked her sheets in real tight and she would get stuck between the side of the bed and the sheet like nice. a burrito and then she would be like, Jen, help me out! <laughs> I'd be like, you need to get up earlier. Dr. Heidi, there seems to be a lot of places right now in our lives where we need to be willing to give ourselves grace. Have you noticed? I have noticed. Yes. In my own house, at my own dining room table. My life has all been thrown in a blender. So I'm working from home. I'm schooling from home. I'm cleaning from home. Everything is happening in the same amount of time and space. And it's a mess. And I know you're in that space too, trying to figure out what does it look like to do all the things all the time. I felt like since I'm spending more time at home, I should have more time to do all these things. But I almost feel like because everything's happening at home, I have more time but less energy to get to everything. There's no transitions. There's no transition. Okay, now I'm doing school Mm. drop off. Okay, now I'm doing work. Okay, now I'm home and it's time to start dinner. I'm throwing laundry in between clients and throwing food in the crock pot over lunch. And normally I'm spending all day in my office. We have to give ourselves grace to recognize that we can't apply the same organizational skills to the life before to the life that we have now. We need to find another way of balancing and organizing it. And that involves a lot of grace and a lot more flexibility than normal. And a lot of humor. It is. Yes. My first online telehealth session, there was a guy outside my window fixing a telephone pole, which was great. He was also playing very loud mariachi music in the background. And I could not figure out where that was coming from. (laughs) Right. And so this is not typical for me. And so I wasn't quite sure how to discuss it, but I was like, welcome to working from home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So aside from giving ourselves a little bit more grace, recognizing what is under our control, what can we do to introduce a little bit more order to our blender lives? I think we have to adjust our expectations. Order might be a bit of an idol. 
we maybe want a similar set of organization or pattern to our lives, but that might not be obtainable. So I think flexibility is maybe more the name of the game. Recognizing that multitasking might be the new normal. So you might not get the laundry done first and then work done and then school done. You might get them all done at the same time because you've been kind of working together on all the pieces all day long. We have to find that balance between organization and then flexibility. And what that looks like for you is going to be different than what that looks like for me. Order might be a bit of an idol. You really kind of perked up when she said that. Dr. Heidi said that and it was like a sucker punch to my gut. (laughs) Because my first response is like, well, order's good. God is orderly. Like, look at creation. There is order to it. I went to a private school for high school. My math teacher's favorite verse was 1 Corinthians 1440. Let all things be done decently and in order. He loved that verse. But then I thought, if I value something that God created more than I value God himself. That's probably an issue. Well, that's what she means when she said it can be an idol if we put anything above God. And so I started thinking back through the Bible and all these people that God calls out of a life that they had established into a life of uncertainty. Didn't he pretty much do that with everybody that he called? I mean, you think of so many people. Abraham, he is like this wealthy yeah. father of a Land clan. Owner, yeah. And then God's like, hey, drop everything and go to a place I'm going to show you. Like, he literally doesn't even give him a destination. He's just like, I'll tell you when you get there. Well, he does that with Philip, the tax collector, sitting there collecting yeah. taxes. He's like, come on, follow me. The, the Peter, James, and John, right, mm-hmm. front, right from off their fishing boat. Yeah, and, you know, there's all these studies about, well, the fact that they had a fishing boat of their own meant they were very successful fishermen, and so Jesus didn't say, hey, we can all stay together in this house. We're going to split an apartment. They just kind of wander around, and Jesus tells these random stories to people, and they were willing to drop the order of their lives to go to Jesus. Well, he he called them out of their order yeah. to follow his. And I think that is something that I really need to learn how to do. It's about time we focus on something that's really important. Yeah. This is the great potato chip debate. Very important issues here on Life 107.1. Ben and Jerry's wants to put potato chips in an ice cream. I say no. I'm a purist. I eat potato chips one way, straight out of the bag, or... If I'm feeling spunky with any party dip. And I think Jen needs to get on the right side of history and realize that potato chips have been all kinds of different places. So why not putting it in ice cream? Rachel, <laughs> tell me where potato chips have gone in your life. My late husband always ate his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with potato chips on them. Ooh. It didn't matter what potato chip he put barbecue, jalapeno chips, any Doritos, it didn't matter. Like he would just he like the crunch factor. If of there it. was a chip available. Yep, it went in that sandwich. Was it a crunchy or smooth peanut butter? No, it was smooth peanut yeah. butter. Oh yeah. I mean so you can't you get have too much crunch. Yeah. Smooth peanut butter, <laughs> yeah, crunchy yeah. chips, sweet jelly. I like it. The headline screamed at me this morning <laughs> and through my bleary not enough sleep eyes. I had to blink a couple of times to make sure that I was actually looking at it. Jen is seriously struggling with this. Ben and Jerry's has a new ice cream flavor. Well, what's wrong with that, Jen? Nothing except they have chocolate ice cream with fudge chips in it. And then they put swirls of potato chips in it. Potato chips in a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I, I 
as the kids say, I can't even. No. I, I, no. <laughs> you can't. I, listen, I have no problem with this. I think it's a great idea, and tons of people put potato chips on all kinds of different no, things, Jen. No, no. Potato chips are to be eaten purely. Either straight out of the bag or maybe with A&E dip. Okay, then you might not want to listen to what Sarah has to say. I wanted to share my favorite sandwich. It's peanut butter and jelly with the bottom crumbles of the barbecue chip package mixed in. <laughs> and it just when you bite into it, it has a nice crunch and it tastes so good together with the barbecue flavor. So you just like sprinkle it on top. Yeah, yeah. And then you put the bread together and it's an awesome sandwich. I so, highly recommend it. Okay. Awesome. That's great. It's... Okay. <laughs> It'll make more sense when I tell you that I started dating when I was pregnant with my daughter 28 years ago. Okay. And I got to like it, and I just kind of kept on. So if that, that helps, that makes yeah, more sense. Yeah, that's why it started with the crumbles. Context is key. Now I get it, mm-hmm. and I'm all for it. You go, girl. Love Whatever it. gets you through. This has been the Taylor and Jen Podcast. You can hear more from Taylor and Jen weekday mornings online at Life1071.com or on the Life1071 app.